Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. I learned to drive on the only asphalt street in the area. It was my 14th birthday, and my dad taught me in a Peugeot pickup stick shift with a column shift. Three on the tree, for those of you older folks out there. The street was at a local airport by the terminal, and it was about 600 feet long. Aside from a few paved streets about 150 miles away at the president's hometown, one would drive hundreds of miles with no asphalt. Rather, it was dirt, dust, sand, gravel, red clay, or mud, depending on the season. And we had two, dry season and rainy season. While we take paved streets completely for granted here in the U.S., all roads in northwest Congo where I grew up were dirt. In the U.S., people go off-road to have fun, get their trucks muddy or dusty, and to be macho and adventurous. So off-roading is a novelty here, while in Congo, it was a reality for every trip between point A and point B. The Democratic Republic of Congo was a Belgian colony, and in the 1950s and 60s, they created a road system good enough that cars could drive from various cities and towns. Unfortunately, after the country gained independence in 1960, the road infrastructure began to deteriorate. Vehicles gravitated to being trucks, as cars didn't have the clearance, and then to four-wheel drive trucks in certain cases. Motorcycles, being dirt bikes, were often the best choice for the fastest travel, especially when the roads were really in bad shape. I got to ride my dad's Yamaha 175 Enduro in high school, and when I was 20, I had a Honda 250 dirt bike that was awesome for the roads. Man, that thing was fast. There were no gas stations. If you broke down 50 to 100 miles from a town or mission station, you were on your own. There were no McDonald's for buying a Big Mac and Coke on the way when you were hungry or needed a bathroom. Take a short hike into the forest or grasslands when nature called. And bring your own TP. There were no motels. There were no phones and no AAA. It was you, your truck, and nature as you traveled. Mechanical breakdowns were a normal occurrence. Thus, you traveled with tools, food and water, and always with a sense of risk and adventure. So when you left to go on a road trip to travel or haul freight, it would be an adventure. Today's episode will share some of the more epic stories of traveling in Central Africa and what one often encountered as a challenge on the road. Pete Ekstrand, retiring this year from service in Congo, spent almost 40 years there driving trucks and motorcycles. Here's a few examples of some wild trips and amazing jerry-rig repairs. I think the worst mechanical problem we had on our trip was on our return from Boomba. The truck we drove was a five-year-old Toyota Hilux with about 50,000 kilometers on it. On our return, we lost one of our front half axles. So we stopped in the village to figure out what to do. As we didn't have a spare with us, the mechanics in the group decided to simply remove the half axle cover up the opening in the front differential and to the wheel bearing. This would allow us to keep going, but without four-wheel drive. While I had already made it through the longest sandy stretch, I still had several more to go. 
Knowing I didn't have four-wheel drive, I planned ahead, chose my route, through it carefully, so I would always have outside wheels on the grassier area and gunned it every time. We made it all the way. A couple of years ago, we were returning from Abuzi with the church president, and in their land cruiser, they had one of the tie rod ends broke. And the mechanic was able to get down there and put the bolt, another bolt back in there, and then wrap it up with strips of inner tube and hold it securely in place until we could get to someplace else where uh, we could actually get a replacement tie rod in. It made it through a lot of bumps and muddy stretches. Those guys are exceptional in what they can do in making things repairs. Sometimes the trips are so memorable, they're forever ingrained in our minds from all the challenges and discomforts. I think the worst travel experience I had was when I traveled from Yemen to Bada We left Yemen on a Friday morning with a plan to drive to Bada that night. It's only 220 kilometers. East of Kerala, we drove into some sprinkles and we arrived at the Bow River. The log bridge was impassable. The big log need on the one side we needed to use to cross had fallen in. So there was a place on the side where we could ford the stream, but an eight ton cargo truck was stuck on the other side coming out of the stream. So if we were gonna ford, we had to go around him. My guide looked at the area and said, we can go off here to the right side. And I tried to just squeeze past the truck without getting too close to him to get pulled next to the truck and not getting too off to the far off to the other side where I'd get stuck in the mire. Well, I almost made it, but the front wheel axle, the front wheel got sucked in. It was 3 p.m. and the front wheel was below at ground level. It was lightly raining and muddy. The passengers were able to get out. We had an extra mechanic and a helper with me and they dug and dug. They worked hard to try and first push the truck out. Then they tried to use the jack to jack the front end up so that they could put some logs or the, a seat board underneath the, the wheel to get it high enough to get out. We couldn't do that either. You put the jack under there and just squeeze it back down. After working for six hours in light rain and seeing that the stream was starting to rise, we quit at 9 p.m. There was a nearby village about a kilometer away. The pastors had already walked up to there and found lodging for us. So. That was our little, um, well, I wouldn't say bed and breakfast, but we spent the night, we got a, a bed to sleep in, no supper, no shower. And the next morning, the rain had stopped and the mechanic had been out early, got a whole bunch of guys from the nearby village on each side. And by six o'clock in the morning or before, they had the truck pushed out and we were ready to go. On our return, the cargo truck was gone, the road was dry, and we went right through the Ford without any problem at all. I've also asked Gene Bradford, who spent many years in Congo and did a lot of driving about one of his most memorable, in a bad way, trip. We came to another hole in a swamp. I started through, I got hung up with a ridge underneath that just hit the rear axle right and, and I was stuck. So I got out, grabbed my chain, and started walking forward to hook on to the other truck. 
and he drove away and left me there. I was <laughs> somewhat upset, but what can you do? And uh, we spent the whole night there in the swamp. And it was hot. You couldn't sit in the truck with the windows up because it was just too hot. Uh, the windows down, the mosquitoes, well, there were so many in the cab. Anyways, it didn't really matter. But I ended up walking up and down the, the road there most of the night because I was trying to walk away from mosquitoes. The truck that was stuck had stayed there overnight. When the workers came back the next morning, I talked to them and I thought they were going to help me get out of the hole. And they all headed down the road to get into their own truck. And all of a sudden they stopped, they turned around and they came back and they said, get in there, we'll help you get out. And what a great feeling, uh, didn't take long. And we were out of that hole. The Congolese often raise chickens, ducks, goats, sheep, and pigs. Though the law said that all livestock had to be corralled, that never happened as all animals roamed free to forage for food. This meant that while driving through villages, there were often casualties as chickens or ducks wouldn't get out of the way and unfortunately would get hit by the truck. Worse yet and more dangerous were the goats, sheep, and pigs that wandered around as hitting one could cause some serious damage. What is amazing is that the phrase we all know about chickens crossing the road is so true. I'd be riding my motorcycle or driving a truck into a village, for instance, with huts on both sides. And about 40 yards from the road on one side, a chicken would hear me coming and start to beeline it for the road to cross to the other side. Why? I have no idea. Figure that out and you will have solved one of life's biggest mysteries. Meanwhile, I'm bombing on the road through the village at 30 to 40 miles per hour, minding my own business. The chicken is running as fast as he can, and I mentally calculate the vector of my speed, the chicken's speed, and determine if he'll beat me or I'll beat him to the meeting point in the middle of the road. Quite often, even with my attempt to break or change my speed, He'd hit my wheel and I'd see feathers everywhere in my rearview mirror as a chicken's owner would run out to pick him up, knowing that he was going to have chicken stew for dinner. I never understood why the chicken just didn't stay safely by the hut 40 yards from the road when he heard me coming. But no, he had to get to the other side. Please realize I took no joy in hitting chickens, ducks, or goats, as these livestock were vital to the villagers' existence for eggs, for meat, or for animal husbandry. I did my best to miss the animals in and around the villages, but unfortunately, without even trying, it would happen. I remember one motorcycle trip on my Honda 250 that was about 50 miles in length. My count was nine chickens, two ducks, and a goat. And believe me, I wasn't even trying. Chickens I didn't care about. If I hit a chicken, somebody had protein that night for supper. But pigs, goats, uh, sheep, that kind of thing, the larger animals, I tried to miss. Chickens, if I was riding my motorbike, I was a little bit more careful because those chickens can fly high enough to be at your head level and you wouldn't want to hit one with your head. The larger animals uh, I really tried to avoid as I said but riding the bike you were extra careful because you didn't want to hit those animals uh, 
with your motorbike. And uh, one day, our son Terry and I were riding down the road. I was taking him to school. And a pig came out of the tall grass and bush right beside the road. And so I started braking really hard. And then the pig turned around and went back. So I released the brakes and started on the throttle again, just as the pig turned around again and came back out in the road. I hit the pig rather hard with my bike. It put us down really fast, uh, bent uh, my glasses all up, uh, even though we were wearing helmets, bent the rims and everything. And it did break the skin up near my eye, so it was bleeding. So Terry and I got up off the ground and I stood the bike up and it was in a village and the villagers started to gather around and somebody says, what about my pig? And I just looked at him and I said, what about my bike? Look, it's bent and look, I'm bleeding. And he didn't say anything for a little while and we're trying to get settled to be able to ride off again. And then I, the question, what about my pig? And I said, look, my bike is bent up. What about my bike? The law out there is that animals are not supposed to be on the road. So his pig should have been corralled or something, so it could not get on the road. So I just kept returning the request about the pig to my bike. Finally, in the end, we got on our bike and had it running and drove off. We had rivers there that involved crossing on a ferry. The ramps on all were sketchy at best. Some were steel boats with a platform for the truck and others were a series of log canoes with a platform on them. Some didn't have working motors. Others ran along a cable from one side of the river to the other. I remember pulling up to a ferry crossing and turned the corner to see fish drying in the sun everywhere. Man, it stunk bad. Apparently, a 10-ton cargo truck full of dried fish boarded the ferry, lost its brakes, and went off the far end of the ferry into the river. They pulled it out somehow, and besides all the fish drying on every mat, blanket, or patch of grass in the area, the entire motor was in a million pieces drying out as well, ready for reassembly. Such were the hazards of ferry crossings. Gene has a similar story his starter didn't work on his truck. So they would let the truck roll just over the crest of the hill and then put blocks under to stop it. And uh, that way he could shut the truck down and when the ferry came, it would just roll start real nice and easy. Except the guys waited a little bit too long to put the blocks under and the truck rolled over the block, down the bank and straight into the river. This is a cargo truck with a pretty high box on it. And when I got there, I could see just the back corner of the box sticking out of the water. That's all. They had about three more big cargo trucks there or so, and they were hooking on to the truck in the water to try to pull it out backwards again. But the second guy in line refused to hook up, so uh, they couldn't pull him out. So we sat there for quite a while, and finally I said to the others with us, this isn't going to happen tonight anymore. Let's just turn around and go home. So we turned around and drove a couple hours back home again, and 
And the next morning we left and we went a different road with a different ferry. Bridges were another harrowing obstacle on the road. Some were steel framed with cement footings and wooden planks, while others were just a bunch of logs over a small stream. Pete and Jean share a few interesting experiences of crossing bridges or areas where there was supposed to be a bridge. One that uh, is a situation I particularly don't like is having to cross a log bridges that you need to be guided for at night. Because picture the scene, normally you want to have your lights on so you can see, but you need to have someone guide you across the bridge. If your lights are on, you're blinding your guide. So you turn your lights off and just have your running lights on. And so the guy guiding you, he's got a flashlight. And he can tell you to steer a little bit right or left to get you across. Now, of course, it's the opposite sense for him because my left is his right when he's facing me. In one situation, uh, again, returning from Boomba, we're on a bridge and the, we're on the outside beam, which is only six inches wide about three to four feet above the water. So I really didn't want to slip off of that one. Another one was memorable just because it was a log bridge. We were on the outside log and it had me close to the inside and the log moved and we dropped both front and rear wheels on the left side down between the two logs. Spent three hours there in the dark jacking the whole truck up to get it back on the log and across the bridge. There's only maybe half enough boards to get across the, uh, the bridge on. And so you put your boards out and then you, you start driving across and, and drive for three or four boards and then pick the boards up behind you and put them in front of you and on both the front and the back wheels and continue on for another three boards. And it takes a while to get across. Another thing one encountered was police roadblocks. Some were legit and others were money shakedowns, pure and simple. The thought was if anybody owned a truck, they had money and thus should pay something for the privilege of driving on the roads and passing from point A to point B. The police control entering the city of Zongo stopped us and they normally do that. They just look at the documents. They make sure you have a driver's license, your insurance card, your like the regional sticker, the state sticker. And if they don't have some of those, you're going to get a fine. You might have to buy the sticker right there. Well, I have everything in order in the truck. And the policeman, he looked at my driver's license. I have a Congolese driver's license, which is like a U.S. one. It's a plasticized, you know, firm card with my picture on it. And he says, you can't have that. It's illegal for you as a foreigner to have this driver's license. I said, no, I'm a resident here. I've got a resident permit in my passport here and I'll show it to you. And this is what your government gave me for driving in condo. It's illegal, you can't have that. I said, well, here, let me call you. Have you call, talk to the chief of staff of the CUM back in Gemina. I'll call him on my phone. I'm handing my phone to him and he says, no, I, I won't talk to him. We go round and round and round. And about 10 minutes later, he finally said, okay, get on down the road and out of here. The road conditions were either dry or wet, depending on the season. Wet meant mud. This mud had the consistency of clay, 
slippery, greasy, and tough to drive on. And as more trucks went through an area, it would create bigger and bigger holes and mud puddles. Remember, most trucks were hauling cargo. So we're not talking Baja 1000 off-road racing trucks here with minimal weight. These were often six to 10 ton trucks fully loaded, probably overloaded, trying to plow through a 50 yard mud hole full of water and clay. So while often you didn't get stuck, you couldn't pass since several trucks were stuck ahead of you. Thus, you had to wait. Some situations that I've been in, there's always been, there's been a way around when I could work around the trucks uh, without sliding and getting stuck myself and to get into a spot where I didn't have to wait for hours and hours, like sometimes could happen. Mud is a real problem on a motorcycle. Some of the roads are so sticky that you can get lots of mud stuck to your wheels. Plus, it's like driving on grease. Um, it's hard on trucks, too, but a motorcycle can be worse. Make sure the water's not too deep. Mud hole would be filled with water. We had one of our pastors who was driving a Toyota Hilux and came to a mud hole. Didn't think too much about it, but it was a whole lot deeper than he thought. And when he went into it, uh, the water came up over the engine and went into the air intake for the engine. And it just sucked water right through the filter and into the cylinder and then bent connecting rods and valves, all kinds of things. And it was a complete motor job to uh, get that unit back on the road again. I remember when we went to Akula, I think I was 17, I think I was in high school, and some trucks came to Akula, and there just weren't enough drivers to pick them up. And so it was raining, yeah. and we drive down there, and we're coming back, and I remember the first mud hole, you went flying through it, and I just was going to say, no, I'm going to power through it. And I remember I barely made the first one, and you came back and said, no, Jeff, you just do what I do. Follow my lead. So if I hit the juice <laughs> and I got it, you make sure you hit it with speed because otherwise you're going to get stuck. So that was my, uh, my first major mm -hmm. foray into driving truck. The opposite of the impact of rain was the impact of no rain. That meant sand pits, deep, long sand pits. Here's how to get through one. Floor it. Pure and simple, floor it. We try and keep the speed up as much as we could because if you started sinking in, you'd start spinning and you would be stuck. Uh, same with motorcycles. You wanted to shift down a couple of gears and then keep it wide open and lots of power on the back wheel and keep the front end up as much as you could. That's for dry sand. If it's raining and wet and there's water flowing through the sand, best scenario is just to sit there and wait until the water runs out of it. Just keep lots and lots of speed and power up and then you could skate over the top of it then. But if you ever started slowing down, that sand would open up and it would just suck you right down into the sand and then to get out, you almost had to get your jack out and jack your vehicle back up in the air again because the sand is just infiltrated all or the frame and all, everything underneath. And so you were really dead in the water then. You would just be careful with sand pits. The sand pits are long and dangerous, particularly when they're dry. You can easily start swerving and go down on a motorcycle, particularly if you're carrying more weight. 
So with all these road condition challenges, what do you think was the best overall vehicle for traveling? Both Pete and Gene agreed on the best overall vehicle. I actually didn't drive any gas vehicles. I've driven all diesel and they've actually all been Toyotas in Congo. And I like the Toyota Hilux for a couple of things. And the two vehicles that I compared to the Toyota Hilux and the Toyota Land Cruiser. The Hilux, we use a double cab Hilux, which gives nice seating for the passengers facing forward and a short box where you can haul some freight that's a little more voluminous at times. The Hilux, when you put 16 inch tires on it, has a little more clearance than the Land Cruiser. The Land Cruiser is a heavier vehicle, a slow, sturdier vehicle, so it can withstand some more shock and, and jolting. But at the same time, with the, the, one of the standard ones that people have is a, an enclosed cab, but they, behind the front seat, it's all seats sitting facing each other along the sides. And that's uncomfortable for passengers on long trips, and it's very hard to pack in and tie down luggage and keep things in order. The best pickup vehicle by far for, for my driving was the Toyota Hilux, which was a double cab, four-wheel drive diesel. You could buy them out there very reasonably, and when you bought them, they were 15-inch wheels. And we would always change them to 16-inch then, which gave us more clearance. Running with those wheels, many, many times I've gone into a, a sand pit where maybe a Land Cruiser, which is a, a bit heavier but more powerful four-wheel drive unit, was stuck. And I so often would just drive up behind them in two-wheel drive and get out and talk to the guys for a little bit and, and then say, well, I guess I should go. And I would lock in the front wheels and turn out of the deep ruts that I was in, drive up over onto the side of the road where they were throwing all the sand as they're shoveling, drive past them and then drop back down into the ruts again. And when I would do that, all the work, everything stopped because they couldn't believe that uh, this vehicle would do that. And that's one of the reasons why it was so good for the kind of stuff that I was doing. Years of driving and numerous vehicles being tested on these most challenging roads came down to the diesel Toyota Hilux. My dad had one and it was a blast to drive and perfect for the conditions. Unfortunately, you don't see many here in the US as they have to be imported. So you've heard about mud, sand, breakdowns, hitting livestock, mosquitoes, spending nights digging mud, harrowing bridge crossings, and bumpy roads. Every trip was an adventure or had the potential to be an adventure. Most trips were fine, just bumpy, dusty, or muddy. But many encountered challenges, as Pete and Gene have shared today. Now you understand why the Cessna airplane was so important and such a time saver. For more on that, Listen to episode four titled Charlie Mike Uniform. So while you've heard about the not so pleasant side of traveling by truck in Congo, it wasn't all bad. It was a lovely country and often we were stressing the trip about what could go wrong and we would miss enjoying the beauty of the area. Gene gives a great perspective of this. And then he rode the rest of the way to Zongo with me. Hmm. We had a beautiful ride, beautiful evening. 
coming back in the dark and another one of those times you stop in the middle of the road someplace along the way and just enjoy the, the stars and the beauty. The fun side with good memories were many. Driving through a village meant all the little kids running out to the side of the road to yell and wave as we passed by. How could you not smile at that? Or stopping by a fruit or vegetable stand in the village to buy something to eat and the villagers being so friendly and gracious. Or having a family feed you and take you in for the night in their mud hut when your truck broke down in their village. The countryside was beautiful, varying from thick jungle and forest areas to grasslands with minimal trees. The roads were sometimes smooth and gravel and other times sandy or muddy with giant holes. Dirt and dust and mud were the norm for sure. But for me as a kid, it taught me to be prepared and it taught me problem solving and to accept the circumstances when things don't go as planned. I want to thank Pete Ekstrand and Gene Bradford for telling their stories of road trip adventures to help share what it was like traveling by truck in Central Africa. Great stories from both of them, and I hope it gives you, the listener, some perspective on your travels here in the U.S. Here, the main thing we check for is traffic and possibly weather conditions if bad rain or snow is involved. That's all we worry about since we have paved roads, plenty of food and lodging options, and AAA road assistance. Now you know what we had in store in Congo when we pulled out of our driveway for a road trip. We faced an adventure. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.